0: Well, again, I want to say good morning and welcome to Trinity as we are continuing in this uh, third weekend going through this book, this letter to the church at Rome. And as I said at the beginning of this entire series, what we're going to see as we go through this book is really Paul kind of circling around three major themes. Namely, what is the gospel? Who is it for, and how should it shape our lives? That these are really kind of the questions that drive his letter. And over the past uh, last week, we, we talked about who the gospel is for. We we talked about it's for everybody because everybody needs it, and that ultimately, it's what the gospel is. is It's good news. It's good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so we want to continue uh, to follow Paul as he uh, continues to make his case and, and explore this further. But I think before we do that, it's only right to allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message he, had for, he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that you have called us together in this time and in this place to meet with us. Lord, that it is your desire that we would not just know about you, but that we would know you. That you reveal your heart to us through your word. And so, Lord, as we come before that word now, as we study this letter that Paul wrote to your church in Rome, Lord, may we hear it as a a letter that's also written to us, the church gathered here and now. And so, Lord, we give you this time asking that you would help us to hear the words you have to speak. And, Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, I really enjoy looking at family photo albums. The reason I love looking at family photo albums is because of the fact that every time you crack those open as you're sitting around talking with family and reminiscing about the events that took place, you, you start to get some of the stories. You get the stories of your family. You get the, the stories of who these people were, what they valued, what they did. It's the way that you find out a little bit about who you are. How did our family become, uh, come to live where we live? How is it that we are who we are? Where did that phrase come from? from, that uh, mom or dad always mutters, and where did that particular dish, that bizarre dish uh, on Thanksgiving Day, who first made that thing and why is it always here? These are like the big questions that like looking at a photo album can address because it brings out the stories, the stories that make us who we are, the story of our family that helps us understand what does it mean to be a part of this family community, what are the gifts uh, that we've inherited, the stories that we, that we tell to remind ourselves of who we are and what's most important? And in many ways, as we're going into Romans chapter 4, this is exactly what Paul is inviting his readers into. He's saying, I want you to look back. I want you to look back at our family album to understand what it means to be a part of the family of God. I want you to look at our family album in order to understand what it means to be a part of the family of God. And to do that, what what he does is he actually goes all the way back to the very, very beginning of of their story. He goes all the way back to the book of Genesis and to the story of Abraham. And I think that there are three reasons why why Paul goes to Abraham. The first is, is that Abraham is quite literally the great granddaddy of all the Old Testament heroes. That the story of the people of Israel, the Jewish people, traces its story all the way back to this ancestor. That it was Abraham who is seen as their great patriarch, as their great leader. He is a hero to all Jewish people and he is accorded prophet-like status both within the Jewish and the Muslim communities. And for Paul, a man who was raised as, as, a, as a pious Jewish man in the first century, Abraham would have been one of those heroes that we, he would have studied growing up. He would have heard stories about great, 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 great grandfather Abraham and about how his life and his story now shapes our lives and our story. But the second reason why I think Paul goes to Abraham is because of the fact that Abraham received, was the first to receive the covenant of God, the promises of God. And so as Paul is starting to talk about what does it mean to be a part of this family of Abraham, he wants to go back and say, let's look at that covenant. Let's look at those promises, understand the terms by which they were given because it will help us understand what it means for us to be a part of God's family. But then the third reason that I think Paul goes back to Abraham is because he has just laid out something pretty shocking right before this. You see, chapter 3 concludes with these words. It says that, um, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You see, this would have been shocking because in Paul's day... Most Jewish people, and by extension many uh, Christian, uh, Jewish Christians of his day, believed that what it meant to be a part of God's family was that you had to justify yourself by works. That it was your behavior that made you a part of God's family. And so Paul now kind of dropped this this kind of bomb on that way of thinking at the end of of chapter 3 by basically saying, no, it's not about your works, it's about faith. And it's always been about faith. And so the question is, well, how is he going to back that claim up? How is he going to back that claim up? And he says, well, let's go all the way back to Abraham's story. And he begins chapter 4 with these words, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? And so I want to invite you to open up to Romans chapter 4 with me. If you have your Bibles, you can go there now. Uh, If you're using a Pew Bible, it's on page 941. And by the way, uh, we want you bringing your Bibles every week uh, so that you can mark them up, highlight them, write notes in them. And if you don't have a Bible, why don't you take that Pew Bible with you? Let that be our gift to you. We want you to have it so that you can study it, so that you can continue to walk through this book with us. But we are looking at Romans chapter 4. And as we read chapter 4, what we need to kind of hear is we need to hear Paul in dialogue with his opponents. That every point that he's making is in response to some sort of counter-argument that he had heard before. And especially as he begins to address this question of what does it mean to be a part of God's family? Because many of his uh, uh, opponents have said, no, to be a part of God's family, what matters is what you do. That it's about your obedience to God's laws. Paul has been talking about this in, in chapter 3. And this is not uh, kind of a, a new way of thinking and it's not an old way of thinking. It's just the way most people think. In fact, Carl Jung, the uh, uh, founder of analytical psychology, uh, said that you are what you do, not what you say you'll do. You are what you do, not what you'll say you do. And many of Paul's own opponents were basically saying, you can't say that we're a part of God's family simply by faith. What makes you a part of God's family is based on what you do, your obedience to works of the law. You see, they looked back at the Old Testament. And the Old Testament begins with the Torah, with the Pentateuch, with this instruction from God that's filled with over 633 commandments. And they said, "What really matters is your performance. That that's how you get into this, this the people of God. That's how you then stay in the people of God is by obeying the laws that God has given us. That it's really about your performance." That there's a certain moral standard that you have to maintain in order to get in. And so that's who Paul is dialoguing in verses 2 through 4. He says, and he says, for now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. He's saying, well, if it's, if it's about our works and our performance, then we need to know that anything that we receive is what we've earned. And that's really what many of his opponents thought. It's really about what we've earned. And so Paul takes kind of a little glance back at the family photo album. And before he goes straight to Abraham, he actually goes to King David. And he says in uh, verses 5 and following, he says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David Also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Here are Paul's opponents saying it's about what you do. It's about your performance in the eyes of God. And Paul says, no, look at our family photo album. Even David writes this song talking about how, no, it's really not about our performance. It's about God's forgiveness. But there's another objection that many of his opponents have. And that's that you also have to be from the right family. The right family of origin. Because he goes on in verses 9 and following, he says, So is this blessing, this blessing of forgiveness, this blessing of being a part of God's family, only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness, but then was it, uh, But how then was it counted to him? Was it counted before or after he'd been circumcised? Now, we're kind of sitting there and we're saying, okay, why is, what's the, with the obsession of circumcision here? But we have to understand, that, that, again, that family story. You see, when Abraham was first called by God, God said, I'm going to give you a sign in your own bodies that will mark you as mine. And so he tells Abraham that on the eighth day after they're born, every male who is born to you and to your family down through all generations will be circumcised, that this will be an external physical sign that you are a different kind of people. Now, that was given as kind of an outward sign of their covenant with God. Alright, the New Bible Dictionary says that in its original Old Testament context, circumcision embodies and applies covenant promises and summons one, uh, a person to a life of covenant obedience. So it was supposed to simply be an outward sign of an inward relationship, but by Paul's day, many people had started to believe that what really made you a part of the family, really made you part of the in-crowd, was that you were born Jewish that you were born to Jewish parents, that you were circumcised on the eighth day, and that, that that gets you in. You see, essentially what Paul is addressing is this argument that says that the way you get to be a part of God's family is through a combination of performance and pedigree, good genetics and good grades. And I don't really think that that's something that's very different from today, that in fact when I talk to many people about what it means to have a relationship with God, it's surprising that these same kinds of assumptions are often at play. Some people, I'll talk to them and I'll say, so what does it mean to have a relationship with God? And They're like, well, I don't know really. I mean, I was just kind of born into a Christian family. You know, I was just born and we, 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 we grew up, you know, going to church and stuff like that. And I was like, okay, but what does that mean for your life today? Ah, you know, we just, we, we just keep going to church because that's what we've always done. Likewise, I ask other people, I say, well, what does it mean to have a relationship with God? And they say, well, being, having a relationship with God means that I need to be a really good person. That that's really what it means to have a relationship with God, is that God has a certain list of things that he wants me to do, and, and I do them in, in the hopes that that will please him, and then hopefully when I die, uh, I'll be accepted into heaven. That really what, what a relationship with God is all about is really just being good, It's just by trying your best and doing your hardest and hoping that at the end of the day, God says, good enough. But let me ask a question to both of these objections. I want to start first and foremost with well, I was just raised in church for just a moment. So you were raised in church, but does that necessarily mean that you have a relationship? Just because you were born into a certain set of circumstances, does that necessarily mean that you know the one who called you into it? I mean, I look around at the countless broken homes, the people who haven't spoken to their parents in years. And yes, while you may have been born into that family, is that really your home? Do you really know those parents? That's the same with God. I was born into this church, I was, born, I was raised in church, but if we never spend time talking with him or, or relating to him, is that really a relationship? Or what about the, the good enough crowd? God just wants me to be good. That's the basis on, what I'm, uh, on which I'm accepted. What does good enough mean? It's really fascinating when I talk to people and I say, okay, so define good enough for just a moment. And people give all kinds of interesting answers. They say, well, you know, it's to treat your neighbor as you, would want, as you yourself would want to be treated. You know, it's don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat, okay? Try to serve other people, be a really good person, you know, work to be at peace with everyone. Don't lie or gossip or do stuff like that. And What basically comes out is like a smattering of like hallmark moralism combined with a vague understanding of the Ten Commandments right? And then I say, okay, that's, that's interesting, but now let's do a thought experiment for just one moment. Let's take your definition of goodness and let's look at all the years of your life from the moment you were born up until now. And let's not just look at what people, what the, the face you put on in public. What if I had a video camera that also could show everything that you've done in private? And more than that, that it could also play back the thoughts in your mind and in your heart. I want to play all that back. How well do you think you would do living up to your own definition of what it means to be good? And then this is what happens next. Almost everybody's like, Well, you know, not everybody's perfect, right? I mean, we all make mistakes. And then they kind of set up a low bar, you know. At least I'm not like uh, so-and-so. Usually the low bar is Hitler. At least I'm not Hitler. You know, a low bar is really easy to jump over. And it's just like, at least I'm not one of those people and stuff like that. But yes, exactly. See, that's the point. On the one hand, we want to hold everybody to a high bar except ourselves. And let me ask this question. What if the high bar is God's law? As, as Paul has been arguing all the way up to this point. How many of us would say we're good enough? How many of us would say that we are holy as God himself is holy? Perfect as our father in heaven is perfect. You see, if we're counting on our pedigree or our performance to get us in, we've missed the whole point We've forgotten the family story. Because Paul says, let's look at our forefather Abraham for just a moment. Because when we look at our forefather Abraham, what we see is that he doesn't get in with, through a combination of pedigree and performance. That when you look at Abraham's life, it's, it's a very different kind of life. Paul begins his argument by saying, what does scripture actually say about Abraham. And side note for just a moment, for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, this is a great question with which to begin. That whenever we are faced with a major life decision, whenever we are faced with a crisis or a question, our first knee-jerk response must be, what does scripture say? Not, what do I think Or how do I feel? Or what do other people in similar life circumstances have to say? Or other people who understand the pain I'm going through? No, our first knee-jerk response is always, what does God's word have to say? Paul says, what does it have to say about Abraham's story? This is what it says, beginning in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring... That he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of his wife Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is a great summary of the life of Abraham. Because you see, Abraham's pedigree certainly didn't commend him. He was born among pagans in Babylon. He was a wandering nomad with almost nothing to his name. Furthermore, he wasn't uh, commended because of his performance. You look at the life of Abraham, and what you see is that while Abraham at moments shows great courage, most of the time he lies, he cheats, he hides out of fear. He often, at times, doesn't even obey what God tells him to do, trying to take matters into his own hands, and at times makes it worse. But what Paul says is, he says, but the story of our great-grandfather Abraham, what it teaches us, is that we are a family that is defined by our trust in God. That that was the promise to Abraham, that because of his faith, Because of his faith, he would become the father of many nations. In fact, if you look at Genesis chapter 15, this is the promise that God made to him. He says, God brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. You see, he says, even in Genesis, our forefathers acknowledged that to be a part of the family of God simply means that we are dependent on God's grace and we believe his promises. That is it. That we are dependent on God's grace and we believe his promises. Abraham knew that he was old, that he couldn't have a child on his own. He knew that he came from nothing. And that he had nothing to his name. And he knew the many times in which he had fallen short. And yet what Paul tells us and what we see when we look at that family photo album is that he trusted that God was able to do what he promised. That Abraham knew that though he had nothing, he believed that God was capable of doing far more than he could ask or imagine. And so he followed And he knew that he was righteous in God's sight not because of anything that he had done but simply because God declared it to be so. And then one day from him would come a promised one who would ensure that many nations would also receive that same promise. See, Abraham wasn't just the father of Israel. He wasn't just the patriarch of the 12 tribes. He's the father of every single person who puts their faith in the God who is able to raise the dead back to life. You see, in God's economy, the only family tree that matters is this one. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. In God's economy, the only performance that matters is his You see, Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He was perfect in every way, not sinning once. He died the death that we should have died. He went to a cross for our sins, for our shortcomings. And he rose again to new life to say, that promise to Abraham is a promise that I make to you. And all I ask is that you would trust me. Trust not in your own work but in what I have already accomplished for you, that you are my forgiven children. That's why Paul goes on to say this. He says, That is why Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And this is good news for all nations because what it says is it says it doesn't matter where you come from or what you've done. It doesn't matter your family of origin or the pains of your past. It doesn't matter your shortcomings or the things that you failed to do. God says you are welcome in my family. You are welcome because of what I have done for you. I have made you my child. My son came and laid down his life for yours so that you might live and always be with me. This is indeed a faith that every single person from the highest to the least can put their hope and their trust in. Paul says, this is the reason why I am an apostle, why I am a messenger, why I am a sent one, that though I was raised in a Jewish family, circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee among Pharisees, I go to the nations... I go to the pagans and the Gentiles. I go to those who don't know the promises of God to tell them the good news that they can be a part of the family. That the faith of Abraham can be theirs because of Jesus Christ. That they can know that they are God's chosen people because of the love that he poured out for them through his sacrifice for them on the cross. Paul says, that is why I go. And I think it's no mistake that we celebrate that on this Pentecost Sunday. Sunday is indeed Pentecost when we celebrate the the day in which Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit on all of his followers. And I want to turn there for just a moment. If you've got your pew Bible, go to page 909. If you've got your own Bible, just go to Acts chapter 2 verse 1. Listen to what that first Pentecost was all about. And see if you hear some familiar themes. It says, When the day of Pentecost, this is after Jesus has risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, his disciples are in Jerusalem. And it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, when his disciples were all together in one place, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking from Galilee? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them and we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. You see, this promise to Abraham was a promise that he would be the father of many nations. That every single person on this planet would hear of the wonders, glories, and mighty works of God in their own tongue. That people from every background racial group and culture socioeconomic status and family of origin would know that they can do they too can be a part of the family of god through jesus christ this is what motivated those first jews from every nation under heaven to go back to those nations and to now share their faith not just with fellow jews but with people who were very different from them culturally and uh, and racially and ethnically It's what has driven the church for 2,000 years to cross borders and to break down walls so that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation can know the love that God has for them. It's in response to that great commission that Jesus gave to them when he rose from the dead and said, go and make disciples of all nations. Let them know that they too are heirs of the promise that was given to Abraham to be God's chosen and special people dearly loved. That that gift is theirs, not through pe- pedigree and performance, not through their backgrounds and what they've done, not through genetics and good grades, but because simply God loves them, that He died for them, that He gave His life that they might know that they are precious in His sight. This is the reason we as a church go. This is the reason we share our faith. So that people who don't know and who don't have hope can know and have hope that God is indeed their father. That he does indeed love them. That they can see the extent of that love. That he was willing to die for them. This is why we cross social and economic and racial and ethnic and cultural boundaries. That's not just something that we're doing at a church in Galewood, although it's great that we're planting in the city. It's something that we need to be prepared to do every day of our lives as our own country becomes more and more diverse. To ask ourselves the question, what boundary am I called to cross today? What new person am I called to love and to reach with the good news? And am I willing to go as an ambassador with that good news so that they too would know that they are welcome in the family? See, that's our story. When we look at the family photo album of faith, when we study this book of Romans, we see that God gives his promises so that people from every background might know the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus. That has always been our story from Abraham until now, from faith for faith. Faith in Jesus Christ our Lord and our Savior who gave himself up for us that we might live. It's in his name that we are indeed children and heirs of Abraham. And it's in his name that we say, amen.